This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. The early solar system was a tumultuous place. Space rocks impacting and colliding with larger bodies to form and shape our contemporary cosmic neighbourhood. But what was the effect of these collisions? And how can we wind the clock back to learn more about the evolution of the solar system? This episode, I spoke to planetary scientist and space rock expert Simona Marquis to find out about the role of collisions in shaping the planets, moons and other celestial bodies that we know today. So I'm Simona Marquis, um, a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute in Colorado. And I study asteroids, planets, um, the solar system and how those objects formed. Yes, no, uh, well, yeah, uh, thanks very much for, for speaking to me today, um, Simone. Um, and, uh, well, one of the reasons that we're speaking today is because your your book is about to come out. At the time of recording, it's about to come out. Um, and it's called Colliding Worlds. Um, and as, you know, as a sort of brief, brief synopsis of the book, I suppose, would be, would be right to say, a sort of um, history of the solar system via the the collisions that have have, have shaped the solar system and, and, the bo- and the planets and the bodies and other sort of moons and things like that throughout the history? Yes, uh, that is that is correct. Um, there is um, what I think it's sort of an untold story, and, and that is uh, the way it is uh, violent processes um, through collisions of uh, different objects um, shaped the formation of the planets, the asteroids, and, and the solar system, and, and as we know it today. And so the book... Um, unravel all these effects uh, from from the beginning of the solar system all the way to um, modern times. So what was the early solar system like? Were there, were there more collisions back then than there are today, for example? Yes, uh, the solar the early solar system was a very, very different place than, than what it is today. Um, you know, today, um, it's it's a it's an exceptional event if we were to see a small object, for instance, uh, coming through the atmosphere of the Earth. We call those events um, uh, falling stars, uh, for instance, and we see those in the summer. Um, 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 and so those are sort of uh, curious events, and and there is not much to it in the sense that those are a modest event. It's not like something that, uh, very energetic. Uh, but now, if you all of a sudden start to go back in time, um, billions of years ago, things were very, very much different. 
Um, and we expect that the a number of collisions, for instance, that Earth was um, experiencing was much, much higher than, than it is today. And so, uh, really, the early solar system was a very different place in terms of, um, of collisions. How can we know that? How, how can we know what, what the early solar system was like and specifically just how many collisions were going on? Yes, the, um, there are different ways of answering this question. But really, I would like to bring it back um, to the perhaps the most basic observation. Um, and this brings us back 400 years, uh, the time that Galileo um, pointed his homemade telescope to the moon, because that is really the key observation. If you just look at the moon as Galileo did, and you can do with the naked eye, without even telescope, you could appreciate that the surface of the moon is not uh, smooth, but in fact, there is lots of round features of it. Galileo called those fissure cavities because for the lack of a better term or even in the understanding of how they form, well, we now know that those round features are impact craters. So what they tell us is that the moon early on in the solar system was subject to a high and intense flux of collision that shaped the landscape. And now we see that not just on the moon, of course, thanks to displaced respiration, uh, we have visited um, uh, other uh, planets in the solar system, satellites and asteroids, and everywhere we find um, a rocky surface, uh, we see plenty of impact craters. And so all of this information directly speaks to the fact that early on in the solar system, collision must have been much higher than they are today. Um, yeah, I suppose that brings us on to nicely to... Um sort of the, the question of the history of the moon. Can we, can we sort of decipher with much accuracy as to how, how the moon formed and, and sort of how, how long ago it formed and did it form via, via collisions? Yes, uh, in fact, uh, that is um, uh, the case. Uh, there has been a number of theories that have been proposed over the years as to, you know, regarding to the formation of the moon. But, uh, but, but nowadays uh, we are settled on uh, what we call the giant impact uh, hypothesis. Uh, this would imply uh, a large object, perhaps as large as Mars, or even larger, uh, colliding with, um, with the Earth early on. And, um, and, and a result of this collision will produce a disk of debris around the Earth, out of which the Moon will uh, coalesce uh, that is formed in, in a relatively short uh, um, time frame. So um, the uh, the current interpretation is that the moon was indeed formed uh, uh, through a giant collision, and in fact, this is another great example of the role of collisions in shaping the early solar system. It's not just um, uh, poking craters on a surface, but it is actually shaping new worlds and and creating new worlds such as the moon. Um, given that the uh, moon is uh, tidally locked, so that one side always faces um, Earth, um, does that have an impact in the difference between the, the near side and the far side in terms of collisions? Are, are there more collisions on the far side because it's sort of facing out towards Earth uh, space, for example? Uh, yes, the, the collision, the current uh, collision on rate of objects striking on the moon, it's not um, uh, uniform across the surface. There is an asymmetry. And, and the asymmetry is actually not uh, between the far side and the near side, but indeed it is between what we call the 
uh, leading side and, and the trailing side, meaning if you are standing on the moon, uh, the leading uh, side is the one that faces the direction in which the, moving, the moon is going and the trailing is the other one. And so that is um, where we actually find an asymmetry. It's not a huge asymmetry and, and, it's, not nece- and it's not necessarily the case that this asymmetry was back there in the past. The moon could have been locked in different, um, in different orientations, uh, for instance, for, for some time. What about um, other bodies in the solar system? Is it is it possible to to sort of say which um, which bodies, like which planets, for example, have been most uh, affected by collisions throughout the history of the solar system? Um, that's it, it's a hard uh, question uh, to answer uh, precisely for for the following reason: uh, when it comes to the other planets. Um, we still have a, um, a limited uh, understanding of what uh, their early evolutions were. Um, uh, consider the following example. Uh, we know a lot about the Earth, um, obviously, because we live on it. And so we have, you know, we can access uh, rocks and materials easily. Uh, but the surface of the Earth is strange with respect to many other rocky planets or other objects in the solar system. And, and the peculiar aspect about the Earth is that it is extremely active in terms of um, geological evolution. So it turns out that the surface of the Earth is relatively young in terms of, you know, uh, um, astronomically uh, speaking. Um, there is hardly any, any portion of the surface of the Earth that's older than 3 billion years ago. So the first 1 billion year, or perhaps even longer, is completely gone. Um, on Earth. And so this is a fundamental issue for us to understand the earliest um, uh, collisional history for the Earth. When it comes to other planets, we have other issues. Uh, Take uh, Venus, uh, for instance. Um, We're never... um, we do not have a good understanding of what the age of the surface is. We don't even have a good understanding of of the composition. We do have images from the surface radar uh, images that were able to pierce through the thick atmosphere, but the, the database that we have, um, it's it's not quite enough to do uh, uh, to fully understand the evolution of the planet. There are lots of mysteries around Venus still. Uh, um, if you go then to Mercury, uh, we have lots of pictures uh, from uh, from the surface. We have full map of the surface, and so we see again on Mercury plenty of craters everywhere of all skies, small uh, small and large. But we do not have samples, uh, meaning we, we lack of a precise understanding of what those um, impacts took place. And so it's hard to reconstruct the history of the planet. And now finally, we can get to Mars. Of course, we know uh, a lot about Mars uh, thanks to the, um, the uh, space exploration. But still, uh, there, there is a fundamental lack of understanding of, 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 for instance, how old are all those craters that we see on Mars. And so Yes, again, we understand perhaps that there were lots of craters, lots of collisions early on, but but it's hard to build um, a, a, a full model that tells us uh, the details of that early evolution. And so we are facing still with lots of challenges. Do you, I mean, um, Mars just always seems to be uh, in the news and, um, and sort of like um, in terms of... Um, you know, scientific discoveries and that sort of planetary science because we, we study it so much, don't we, you know, in terms of the, the rovers and the orbiters. Um, presumably they have helped build build a picture of the sort of collision history of Mars and, and, and the geology. Uh, yes, that is certainly true. Uh, all the missions uh, from, from orbit or, or the rovers 
has um, uh, greatly expanded our our understanding of the early evolution of Mars. There, there is no doubt, and there is there is more to come thanks to the ongoing missions. Um, but in spite of all that, there there are still uh, fundamental issues um, that uh, we know very little about. And just let me give an example. If you look at the picture of Mars, the, one of perhaps the most striking uh, feature is this what we call the dichotomy the, uh, between the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. Turns out that the northern hemisphere is um, it's um, it's probably the results of a massive collision, what we call the borealis basin. In fact, the largest impact structure we find in the solar system, and so clearly that one single event. Um, completely altered um, uh, the the evolution of the planet. There's no no doubt about that. The magnitude of that event was such to, as we said, um, uh, erase entirely half of the planet, and most likely also um, uh, drastically alter the other half of the planet. And so clearly that is an important event. Now the fundamental question about that event is uh, when um, did it take place? Um, we don't really know. Uh, it would make a huge difference, for instance, if that event took place just right after Mars was formed, or if it took place, say, several hundreds of million years after. You know, those different uh, different uh, difference in timing of that formation would would imply a very drastic. Uh, um, uh, you know, a very different evolution of the planets altogether. And so just knowing the age of that feature is key, and yet we still don't know. So there is hope that with the newer missions, uh, collected more samples, we will definitely be able to address that open question. But that is just an example. Of course, there is um, uh, many more things about Mars that we are still uh, trying to understand. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Yeah, indeed. And I suppose if, if, if you go... You know, even further out, so sort of the gas giants and then and then the ice giants. You know, you've got sort of Jupiter and Saturn. I mean, it must be really difficult to to get a sort of picture of the collision collision history of a planet like Jupiter. You know, we like we we can barely even peer peer through the clouds. Is, is there anything you can like we can we can know about sort of Jupiter's collision history? Oh no, we know very little. Uh, we can infer. Uh, perhaps by, you know, those are planets, uh, Jupiter, for instance, it doesn't have a, a solid surface. And so it, you, you don't see the craters, which is the first thing you would like to see in order to study collisions, right? Because they tell you right away that collisions took place. Um, so we lack that information. Of course, collisions must have uh, taken uh, place um, after uh, Jupiter formed, but Jupiter is also the largest object in the solar system. So perhaps um, you know, a collision with smaller asteroids would have been less important. Um, uh, but there are other ways to get at that. For instance, uh, if you if you start uh, adding, uh, say, asteroids or comets uh, to Jupiter, um, they may leave behind a chemical trace in the in the gases. Um, uh, and so, uh, these kind of measurements have been done, and there is indication that uh, material. Uh, could have been added uh, to uh, to uh, Jupiter, say, after its formation. But 
but it, you know it's a it's an entirely different problem than um, studying collision on collisions on on rocky planets. Hmm. Yeah, just uh, speaking of Jupiter, there. Um... I had read like a a year or two ago about um, a theory that um, Jupiter may have sort of uh, moved uh, um, in the early solar system, sort of um, closer to the sun, and then further. I think it was called I think it was called the Grand Tack theory. Um, yes. Wh- where do you stand on that? I mean, there are uh, um, uh, you know different ways of understanding the early evolution of the solar system, and different models have been proposed. So the core idea there is that the current structure of the solar system uh, requires that the planets uh, moved around uh, after their formation. Um, so the current model would predict that uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune formed in a, in a much closer and compact configuration. Um, if that's were the case, uh, those uh, closing uh, planets will become unstable because they'll perturb each other. It's like uh, you know, fighting, uh, you know, gravity pushing pushing things around, and so they want to expand, and, and 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 that's what they did. When that happened, the system is uh, becomes unstable, as we say, and so that is a, a dramatic event for the evolution of the solar system, and as a result of that. Um, uh, smaller objects such as comets or asteroids would have um, scattered all around in the solar system. And so the direct um, outcome of, of, of an instability in the solar system is that to produce an increased rate of collisions uh, throughout the solar system and specifically on Earth. So here is where the details of the dynamical evolution of the solar systems are directly connected to the collisional history of, uh, say, the terrestrial planets. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about sort of um, collisions in the solar system, y- y- you can sort of say that you know the, the solar system wouldn't exist uh, as it is without collisions. But then you could you could you could even you could go even further and say that that the solar system wouldn't wouldn't exist at all like collisions would you because it isn't that really how planets form it's sort of um you know uh, cosmic dust sort of coalescing and colliding with each other and, and, and getting bigger and bigger over time around its star to, to create planets like is it is it safe to say that um that the solar system wouldn't exist without collisions <laughs> yeah i i believe that's exactly true and that is um you know one of the motivation of writing this book that uh, Ravel, the old the complexity associated with collision from from the uh, from the um, uh, growing of dust particles all the way to later events once the planets are fully formed. It is <clears throat> what you said is exactly correct. Um, we always think about as you know gravity is one of the fundamental forces in physics, and and of course gravity is what keeps the solar system together allows the planets to go around the sun. And, and, and so it's really uh, uh, the primary um, uh, process that keeps the system together. But there are very other, many other important processes that in the end of the day are perhaps equally important. And, and collisions is one of them. If you could, by magic, say, turn off uh, collisions, say <laughs> you would be able to, you know, um, uh, do something that collisions will never take place, well, then the solar system would not exist uh, simply because planets, asteroids, everything we see uh, in our solar system um, 
grew is the result of, of collisions. So objects, smaller objects coming together, collapsing, and, and growing in size. And so if you were able to turn off that process, uh, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> when you were... Um... When you were writing the book, did you sort of, because, you know, because that's quite a, like a sort of like um, an existential, um, you know, a sort of almost 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 philosophical um, point of view in, in terms of, you know, science. When you were writing the book, did, did, did you sort of have many moments like that where you, you sort of had this epiphany, like, oh, my goodness, like we wouldn't exist without collisions? <laughs> I, I guess so. There are there are different levels of that. Yes. But uh, <laughs> but yes, there was this uh, moment in time where I realized that um uh, there was this story. It's really about a story, right? About our solar system and ourselves, and and there's a story of in the way collision shaped uh, our planets and 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 ourselves. And so and I realized that that was largely an untold story. And so yes, I that that was a clear point for me that says yeah, oh my gosh, this is interesting. This is something that um, is is uh, it's never been told. Um, and, and, and so I would like to write it. And so that was, uh, kept me going in, in, in this endeavor. <laughs> Did you learn much, much more about, um, our own planet, you know, th through your research, um, other than what you already knew? Oh, yes. Uh, quite a lot. Um, I did say uh, at the beginning that I study planets and asteroids, but uh, really when you start looking at the processes associated with collisions, what it is that the collision could do, um, it opens a lot of very, very different things. So uh, just to give you a glimpse of that, you may want to uh, uh, understand how meteorites, uh, for instance, uh, can help us understanding early collisions. And 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 when you when it comes to meteorites, then you are... You are in a lab. You are studying, uh, you know, um, a, a piece of rock that was formed billions of years ago that landed on Earth, and you are doing chemistry. It's an entirely different thing than when you are um, looking data from a spacecraft that, for instance, is taking picture of, of some asteroids, say Vesta and Ceres, uh, in the main belt of asteroids. And so these are very different um, um, skills that you need to have. And so definitely it broadened up my, uh, you know, range of topics of interest. And, uh, and there is yet one other aspect that I would like to mention that um, we, we usually think about collisions as, um, say, a negative uh, process. Negative in the sense that naturally, if you think about collisions, you end up with uh, a catastrophe, you know, something violent happened to a planet. Uh, and as soon as we start talking about this, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, the demise of the dinosaurs uh, by uh, by an asteroid colliding with the Earth. And so there is this negative feeling about collisions. And so it's a little bit depressing. Um, but then as you start digging into that, you'll find out that reality is very different. And and. And, and there is actually a positive aspect, if you will, about collision. And so that was really new for me. And I really enjoyed it, digging into that. <laughs> you, you've mentioned quite a few of those um, missions that have studied, you know, um, asteroids and comets. So, and we sort of think about, you know, uh, the current OSIRIS-REx mission and the European Space Agency's Rosetta mission to study Comet 67P. Um, but you've actually been uh, really heavily involved in, in lots of those missions, haven't you? Yes, that is correct. I was uh, lucky enough to be involved with um, 
uh, several uh, missions, uh, both from the European Space Agency and also from uh, NASA. And um, I have um, uh, studied uh, directly, uh, for instance, asteroids. Uh, a, a mission to, to which I was affiliated is called the Dawn mission. It's a NASA mission that visited Vesta and Cirrus. These are two largest objects in, in the main belt. And so uh, that's just one example, but there have been many other missions as well. Yeah, the uh, really interesting thing um, about um, Ceres is it, it's it's the only body that we classify as a dwarf planet that isn't sort of beyond Neptune. Um, do you think it, it, it you know, so so it, it, it provided a great uh, opportunity to to observe uh, a relatively nearby uh, dwarf planet? Do you think that um, it, it it's worth sending more um, missions out, out into the Kuiper belt, you know, the, the sort of beyond Neptune, the, 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 the sort of ring beyond Neptune to, to, to look at more objects out there? Oh, th- certainly. Um, there is a great deal to be learned by exploring the, um, you know, um, outer parts of the solar system. Uh, so that is, that is certainly, uh, that is certainly true, as well as I would like to send another mission to Sirius if that was possible. There is still a great deal of interest in science that could be done there as well. So, uh, yes, all of those options will be great. <laughs> yeah, because you often hear people sort of talking about um, comets and asteroids as being like the sort of relics of the solar system. They're sort of um, why is that? Are why are they so important in in knowing what the early solar system was like? Yeah, um, it's an interesting aspect because uh, when you look up an asteroid, you, you see a small object, right? Asteroids have sizes ranging from, you know, uh, very, very tiny, it could be a meter, uh, all the way to um, serious size. This is about a thousand kilometers across. And if you go in the other solar system, you have even larger objects. Now, um, but those are still relatively small compared to larger planets, uh, say the Earth. And so the question uh, that we get asked a lot is, why do you care? about these little things. Are they, uh, uh, because they're small, are they then negligible uh, to the bigger picture? Right? This is a legitimate question. And the answer to that question is that no, they are not negligible. In fact, the Tanzel, they are very, very important for, for a fundamental reason. Let's now consider, for instance, the asteroids that are closer to Earth. Those objects are the leftover, if you will, of the process of planetary accretion. So you can imagine the Earth and other planets grew up out of a disk of debris, the smaller asteroids, um, and, and, and many of them accreted uh, to form the Earth. But as, uh, as you start doing that process, those objects are going to be heavily altered. They are, they are chemically altered. They are, they are uh, uh, molten, and then they resolidify. And so their um, uh, pristine uh, materials are completely transformed in something new. And, and so the information about the earliest material is, is perhaps lost. Now, the leftover of that process are small asteroids that still orbit the sun. Um, and, you know, Vesta, for instance, and Sirius is an, are good examples. And th- those, those objects were not incorporated into larger planets. In other words, they kept, uh, in virtue of their small size, they kept their primordial um, properties. Um, 
of course, there has been some alteration uh, on those objects as well. But the point is that they are not so drastically altered like a larger object. So it turns out that these leftover, smaller objects are indeed very important to understand the formation of the solar system. And there is one key observation that I would like to throw in there. In fact, the age of the solar system, it's not determined by measuring the age of the Earth. It is determined by measuring the oldest meteorites that we find on Earth. And so that tells you directly that, for instance, if you want to know when the solar system formed, you shouldn't be looking at the Earth, but you want to look at uh, this uh, meteorites that comes from asteroids. You must be really excited about the, the OSIRIS-REx uh, mission and the uh, Japan's Hayabusa 2 mission, which, in case anyone doesn't know, um, are actually going to return asteroid samples to Earth. Um, that's just absolutely incredible, isn't it, that we're actually going to have uh, asteroid samples on Earth that we can, we can study? Yeah, that is uh, an, an incredible uh, uh, feat, uh, being able to go... Um, uh, to an asteroid that we have already done in the past, but now uh, the next step is to be able to interact with the surface, uh, grab uh, samples from the surface and bring those samples back. And so that is really uh, something that is extremely important. Of course, we have done something like that with the Apollo missions uh, back uh, you know, in the early days of the lunar exploration, but now uh, the future is to expand in that capabilities to uh, other objects in the solar system, uh, asteroids, and and one day Mars. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, just just to finish, I'm I'm, ju- I'm just going to finish with a, a a question that 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 may make you roll your eyes. Uh, being interested in in planetary collisions and collisions in the solar system, I'm sure you get asked this all the time. But um, what's your sort of view on on the um, on the uh, likelihood of you know uh, a sort of major level impact on Earth and and sort of the Sort of detrimental effect that that might have on life on Earth. Do, first of all, do, do you get asked that all the time, and 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 what's your what's your sort of answer? Yeah, yeah, that's a really common uh, question, and um, and the answer is um, it's it's a it's not a straightforward answer um, in the sense that the Earth the Earth gets uh, collisions every day. Uh, for the most part, these are in in form of tiny. Um, uh, dust grains that uh, comes through the atmosphere. And so we don't notice that. Uh, occasionally, we get a larger uh, fireball coming through the atmosphere. But, um, but, but really, the question is, um, what is the likelihood of having yet uh, something larger coming through the atmosphere, something that could potentially be dangerous for us? Um, so the, the probability of having, say, a, a larger object, uh, something of the order of a kilometer or, or even larger, colliding with the Earth are basically uh, nearly zero. Uh, and, and we know that because we have uh, a precise knowledge of all the objects uh, close to the Earth of that large size, and we know that there's none of them uh, potentially collide in, in, in route, uh, you know, in collision with the Earth. And so, um, and so we shouldn't really be thinking of something like uh, the dinosaur killing event happening again in the near future. I think chances are, are pretty slim for that. However, there is a class of objects that are smaller than that, uh, say tens of meters, perhaps even 100 meters, uh, that sort of uh, size range, which are not tiny, negligible, if you will, 
but they're not super large that would uh, uh, you know wipe out the surface of the earth all at once so in that intermediate size range which is the most uh, dangerous potentially because we do not know a detailed knowledge of all the objects out there of that tiny size because they're hard to observe and so in principle there is a possibility that um, there is an object of that size range that could come through the atmosphere. Now, those objects are not going to wipe out the entire surface of the Earth all at once because they're too small for that. But still, if they were to collide on a major city, um, they could produce significant, significant local damage. Um, now, chances of that are extremely, extremely small. Um, so we shouldn't really be worried about that. Um, but it is a good uh, reminder for space agencies uh, to keep looking for objects out there, unknown objects of that size range, in order to have a full understanding how many are there. And, and, and so that's the first step in order to be fully informed. I suppose that's one, at least one advantage we have um, over the dinosaurs is that the dinosaurs didn't have telescopes or a space program. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Um, uh, now, of course, I want to say that if we were to find out that the 10-kilometer asteroid is, is, is coming towards us, uh, we wouldn't stand any hope of, of deflecting, of doing anything with it because it's simply too large. Um, so, you know, we will know that's coming, but then we'll have to brace and, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do much with it. But we could potentially do something uh, with the small, smaller objects coming towards the Earth if we knew well in advance. Okay. <laughs> well, on that note, um, I think that's about um, all the time we have, um, Simone. But I uh, just want to say thanks very much for speaking to me and uh, good luck with the book when it comes out. And yeah, it was, it's been great to speak to you today. Thank you, Ian. Thank you so much for having me here. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. 